Our scripture reading today is from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and who are not, who have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and it's a joy to be with you and continuing in this short series in the book of Revelation that we began last week, and we're continuing in this Sunday, and as we do that, I'd love to begin our time together looking at this text by praying, so asking God for His help to, to be at work in our lives and during this time. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word. And I pray that we would be encouraged and convicted and challenged and, and, and uh, that we would grow as a result of hearing it together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, who is the author of these words. Amen. Well, 10 days ago, back on September 25th, uh, Rachel and I celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary. And, you know, this ninth wedding anniversary day was, was a lot different than our wedding day nine years ago. Uh, then we had just begun this new journey of life together. And I remember shortly after uh, getting married, I think we'd probably been back from our honeymoon, you know, maybe one week or something like that, getting up really early and, and uh, making breakfast for Rachel in the kitchen and our little dining room in our loft. And uh, just, just because just because I wanted to. I couldn't help myself. And, you know, I mean, this, this uh, anniversary, we were both up early, but with kids and doing all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, we, back then we were so uh, just hopelessly in, in love. And I can say without hesitation that we still are today, but, but it's different now. You know, nine years later, we have three amazing kids, all under six years old. We have a mortgage, a minivan, and, and it's great, but, but it's different, right? And I, I wouldn't trade any of it for a second, but it's different. And, and it's better, actually, in so many ways than it was. I mean, Rachel and I will often laugh about how, gosh, nine years ago, we, we hardly knew each other um, compared to how well we know one another now. And, and our relationship has become a constant in life, this place of uh, just a, a constant and, and, and just a great place of, of connection. But also, nine years in now, it's, it's normal, and it's easy for it to become routine, Right? can easily just kind of slip into being partners in Gorman household enterprises where we're just sort of efficiently dividing up household tasks and, um, you know, working on building equity in this house and effectively educating children. Um, but those aren't the reasons, right? That wasn't the vision that we had when we got, got married, just be able to, to partner well and uh, getting things done. You know, that wasn't how I proposed to Rachel those nine years earlier that, you know, you know, I've been running the numbers, I've been thinking about it, and I think if we partner up and do this together, uh, it's going to be a lot more efficient and effective than if we tried to do this on our own. 
would you marry me? <laughs> I mean, no, of course not, right? But, but over time, even though that's not how you began, the, the pull and the busyness and complexity of life is that you can easily end up there in just the routine and the normalcy of it. Doing the right things, saying the right things, but slowly it's possible in a marriage to lose the warmth and affection and self-sacrifice that fuel marriage for the long haul. I think we all know this intuitively, right? And, and it's not just in marriage either. Whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, what is at the heart of a meaningful and joy-filled life? Right? It's, it's not just doing and saying the right things and, and living on autopilot. No, lives of meaning and joy are saturated with love and warmth and connection and energy in life. Right? A life without self-giving love towards others is lonely. A marriage without that sort of love is miserable. And here's what I don't want us to miss this morning, that Jesus is so clearly expressing to us that a church, a church without that sort of love is a church without witness to a broken and hurting city. A church without love is a church without light. A church without love is a church without light. Just like marriages over time can fall into the trap of routine and autopilot, doing all the right things, saying the right things, but lacking warmth and affection and joy, so too churches over time can fall into the same pattern. And as a church, we can do all the right things. We can run great programs. We can put on great Sunday services, manage our, our budgets and our, our buildings to perfection but lack in a deep warmth of love and joy and passion for Jesus and for our, our neighbors and for one another within our church community, within our church family. And this is exactly what had happened in the church that was in the ancient city of Ephesus. And here in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus comes to, to wake up this sort of sleepy church that has lost its love. Like I said, this is our second message in the book of Revelation. We're calling the series A Church for the End of the World, looking at what does the church need to be to do well in following Jesus to the end. We're not going to preach through the entire book of Revelation in this series. We're just looking at these seven letters that Jesus addresses to these seven churches, actual real churches in the first century, and what he says to them, and how they should shape who we are as a local church. And at some point in the future, we'll come back and, and do the whole book of Revelation, but for now, we're just focusing on these first few chapters. And it's clear here in Revelation chapter 2 that this church is losing its love, and as a result, because it's losing its love, it is losing its light to the world. And so this morning, what we want to do is look at these verses and say, what are the marks of a church that loves well and therefore is a light to its community? What are the marks of a church that loves well so that it can be a light? And the first thing that we see here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that the church that loves refuses to give up on the truth. A church that loves well refuses to give up on the truth. And I want to look at those verses with you again, verses 1 through 3, and I'd encourage you, uh, pull out the, the Pew Bible in front of you and, and navigate back to Revelation chapter 2, or even if you have a Bible on your phone, um, or if you brought one with you, find Revelation chapter 2, it's the last book of the Bible. Um, 
and look at Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to point out just a couple of things about those first three verses. First, uh, one, just to remind us that these are Jesus's words. Jesus is speaking to these churches. And so if you happen to have a Bible that puts the words of Christ in in red, this one I have here does that. So if this is, you know, the Gospels uh, you see in these pages, there's red. Uh, All of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are red. They are Jesus's words to these churches. Second, that this is just an interesting thing. In each one of these letters, Jesus addresses a local church, but he does so by writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus, or whatever the church's name is. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but it's interesting, this language of angel. And then third, notice the language, when I read here, of lampstands and stars. Back at the end of chapter one, Jesus tells us that the lampstands are a metaphor, an image for the seven churches. There's seven lampstands that each one represents one of the churches, and there's seven stars that represent the angels that are connected to those churches, okay? So those, look for those as we read now. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And Jesus says, I know your works, church of Ephesus, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and who are not and found them to be false. And he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. Jesus is excited about this this church. He celebrates their endurance, their perseverance, their discernment, that they're able to tell truth from falsehood, that they have committed to. This is a church that loves the truth. They have the right doctrine and understanding. And there was a lot of pressure on them in this moment to compromise on the truth about Jesus, to give in to the cultural pressure. But this church in Ephesus refused to give up on the truth. And Jesus celebrates them for that. And listen, churches that are a light to their neighbors, churches that that bear witness to Jesus, that invite others to follow him well, they all have this in common with the church of Ephesus. They have a refusal to give up on the truth. And and you're going to see as we go that each one of these letters, uh, and the church of Ephesus happens to be the first one, but each one of these letters that we're going to look at, they all follow a very similar pattern. It's like Jesus is giving these churches a a performance review. So if you've uh, ever, um, you know, at some point in your life, you've probably experienced one of those, whether uh, from a teacher at school giving you feedback or a boss uh, at work, that you've experienced the the kind of the pattern that comes when you get a performance review, right? In each one of these letters, Jesus, like a good boss, gives these uh, churches a performance review, and he starts off by encouragement. Again, telling these are the things that you're doing well. This is what I want to affirm you in. And then he sort of moves to some areas for growth, right? And then he ends with sort of a challenge uh, and a call uh, to future um, growth and, 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 uh, and life. So, okay, here's the question though. If Jesus is reviewing a church, why is he writing to an angel? Why does he start off right to the angel of the church at Ephesus? And also, let me just say, too, here, that depending on your, your, your background, where you're coming from, you may just think, why are we talking about angels at all? Uh, it's probably not something we think about a whole lot. But the Bible treats angels as absolutely real. 
And in fact, the Bible opens us into a world that is beyond the natural realm, but is as real as the pew that you are sitting on. As you look at how the Bible talks about angels, you see that angels uh, praise and worship God. They function as messengers. In fact, the, the biblical language, both in Greek and Hebrew, used to talk about angels means messenger, first and foremost, that they are messengers who deliver uh, God's um, word and uh, messages to his people. Uh, they guide and they protect. And, and it seems that this, in, in this text, that each city has an, an angel that's sort of responsible to or connected to a representative of the church in that city. So Jesus today, could, could, you could almost imagine him writing to the angel of the church of, of Kansas City, which is even just a good reminder, too, that back in Ephesus, right, this wasn't just um, like there was one church in Ephesus, uh, but there was a group of these churches, and just in the same way, Christ's community is part of one movement of, of what God is doing, what Jesus is doing in Kansas City. We're just one part of that. We are not the only church in Kansas City. We're not the best church in Kansas City. We're just one part of the broader church in Kansas City and what God is doing through it. And as Jesus addresses this church in Ephesus, he reminds them that they refuse to give up on the truth. Church, we cannot be a loving church if we refuse to give up on the truth, right? Would you want to go to a doctor who had given up on telling you the truth because sometimes it's uncomfortable or challenging? Uh, of course not. Like when you go to the doctor, you need her to tell you what's actually wrong. You need her to tell you the truth about what's wrong, not assure you that things are fine when they're not. And, and no doctor who has given up on the truth uh, can really serve that, their people, their patients well, right? No doctor can give up on telling the truth out of the desire to love their patients better. Uh, and many of you are in the medical field, right? You're, you're doctors, you're nurses, you work in the healthcare profession. You know that doctors love their, their patients best when they tell them the truth. And the, and the same is true for us as the local church. We have to tell the truth to our city and to our neighbors. And, and even when that's uncomfortable or even when it's hard, even when we might be ridiculed or, or mocked for it at times, we have to tell the truth. And now a good church, like a good doctor, tells the truth with compassion and understanding and love and, and empathy, but they tell the truth. A church that loves refuses to give up on the truth. And I wonder this morning, what, what truths are we most likely to give up on? I wonder if you've thought about that. I, I gave that some thought this week. A couple of ideas came to mind for me here. One, I think, uh, just even in my own life, where am I, where am I tempted? What truths am I tempted? Not in, in sort of belief, but in practice to actually compromise on. And I think one of them is that Jesus is, is the only hope. As the local church, we are tasked with bearing witness to the truth that Jesus is the only hope and the only life uh, that we have uh, and the only chance of joy and happiness that we have both now in this life and for forever. We proclaim the truth that our only hope is in Jesus. But there's a pressure to give in to the sort of the idea and the even functionally of, well, but, you know, sort of all good people will kind of get to, to a good place in the end. But the reality is, is that Jesus is the only hope for any of us, that our, 
that our future, that our happiness is not based on sort of our good outweighing our bad, but is only reliant on what Jesus has done for us. He is our only hope. I think another one is this, that we want the kingdom of God. We want all of the good things that the kingdom of God brings of joy and love and justice and reconciliation. We want all of that, but without the king, right? That we, that's sort of the, the truth. That if Jesus comes, he brings his kingdom, but he brings him. And, and I think sometimes I want, we want the things that Jesus brings with him, but we kind of say, Jesus, then can you kind of go and, and leave us alone? We want the, the peace, the reconciliation, the happiness, but we don't really, we want you to be there when we need you, but then kind of leave us alone and certainly don't ask me to change or sacrifice or give up anything that I want. A church without love is a church without light, and a church that loves and is a light to the world holds on to truth. So Jesus affirms this church. They are holding on to the truth. But next, Jesus moves on to sort of the, this is the areas for for growth part of the performance review, and he goes right to the heart of this issue of love. And what we're going to see in these verses is the church that love continually remembers God's love. A church that loves continually remembers God's love. And that's the heart of Jesus' challenge and critique of this church is that they had abandoned the love that they had at first. They had forgotten God's love for them. They had forgotten the love that they were to show to one another. They had forgotten that they were called to love those who had not yet come to know and love Jesus. And Jesus' words for this church are sobering beginning in verse 4. Take a look again. But Jesus says, this I have against you, Ephesians, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, all throughout the Bible, from uh, early on in, the, in sort of the prophetic books of the Bible, uh, where Jesus is, or the prophets are kind of challenging God's people and their relationship with them, all the way through to the Revelation uh, we're looking at here, one of the primary metaphors, one of the primary images that God uses to describe his relationship with his people is the, the metaphor of a marriage. This kind of romantic love, this marriage commitment between God and his people. In fact, when you get to the end of, of Revelation, there's a, a great wedding feast, and Jesus is depicted as the groom and the church as the bride. It's a common metaphor, this love imagery for the church and for God's people and his relationship to them. And I don't know how many sort of anniversaries, if you will, that the Ephesian church had had with Jesus, but he's saying, look, your love has gone, begin to grow cold. It's not what it was at the beginning. It was beginning to fade. And friends, a church without love is a church without light. And you see it in verse 5, that unless the church in Ephesus renews its love, that its lampstand would be removed. Because the thing that makes the church a light in the world is its love. Its love for Jesus, its love that it has for one another, the love that it has for its neighbors. 
And, and Jesus makes this so clear in the Gospel of John, which is, is, is cool that this is, connects here because this is being written by the Apostle John. He's the one recording these words in Revelation. He was also the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, this is Jesus speaking. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then look at this in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will all people know that, that our lives, that your life, that my life have been utterly transformed and devoted to Jesus above all else? How are they going to know that? What is the one way that Jesus says that? This is how people are going to see that. It, he says, by the love that we demonstrate for one another. That's how people will know that we are disciples of Jesus if we love one another. Which is part of the reason that, that racial division, the economic division in the church is such a, a sin that we must ultimately re repent of because it is a failure to show forth the love of Jesus, the unity of the church to a hurting and broken world. Because it's to the extent that Christians love other Christians, both those who are like them and those who are unlike them, that our churches bear witness to the love of Jesus. And Jesus tells us here how to begin to restore that love that has been abandoned. And he does, he gives three commands to this church. And they're in verses four and five. Look at them there. He says this, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you have at first. And then he says, here's how you, how you restore that. First, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and do. Jesus reminds us to remember the love that He has for us. Remember the sacrifice that He made for us, the sacrifice that He made for you. The, the whole endeavor, if you were a Christian this morning, the whole endeavor of being a Christian that you embarked on was not first rooted in, in your love for God, but rather in His love for you, right? Well, none of us started off wanting to love Jesus. That always begins with Him coming and expressing His love for us. He wanted you. You love Him because He first loved you. First John chapter 4, verse 10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, if you are a Christian, you've had an experience of God's love. If you're a Christian, you've had an experience of God's love and the forgiveness of your sins that, that He offers and I remember for me that experience came alive in vivid ways in the summer between my sophomore and junior years of high school when I read Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and something in my life changed in that moment and the, the love of God and the, the realization of the forgiveness of my sins became real to me. Have you had that experience? Maybe it wasn't a moment for you, but maybe you can think back to uh, a season or a semester in college or a moment uh, of, of a month or a year where all of a sudden you kind of went from, this is just ideas out here to know this is real for me. Do you remember the love that you have experienced?
Have you had that moment? Do you remember that moment? Go back to that moment. Remember. Remember what it was like. Let the love that Jesus had for you, the love that Jesus has for you, yet still rekindle the love that you have for him. Next, Jesus says here to repent, which just simply means to, that's a very kind of religious, churchy, maybe that has some negative connotation to it. It just simply means to turn around and go the other way. To turn around and go the other way. So Jesus says, remember where you have fallen from. Remember the love that you had. And then turn and go back and do the things you did at the beginning. Because you see, we don't regain our love by just sort of willing a feeling to exist. Rather, we do again the things that we did at the beginning. And as we do them, the feeling begins to develop. And it reminds me of one of the most powerful short films that I've ever seen. Uh, it's part of a collection of, of films called uh, Paris, I Love You. And the film, is, it's only five minutes long, but it's, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, there's no sort of dialogue in the film. You just see these things being acted out, and there's a, a narrator kind of voicing over what's taking place in the film. And you see this, this man, he walks into a restaurant to meet his wife, and he's going to tell her that he is having an affair and that he's leaving her. But before he can share that news, she hands him uh, an envelope full of papers. And you sort of see this flashback of her in a doctor's office, and she gets this terminal diagnosis. She's dying. She just has a few months left to live. The man immediately breaks things off with this other woman and devotes himself completely to caring for his wife in the remaining days that she has. And as we watch this man with such tenderness and self-sacrifice and love, the narrator says these, it's worth the the whole collection of films for this one line. He says, by acting like a man in love, he became a man in love again. By acting like a man in love, he became a man in love again. And this is kind of classic French filmmaking, right? It ends in this tragic moment now. He's fallen. He was about ready to leave this, his wife, but he falls so deeply in love with her by acting like a man in love again that his, the whole rest of his life is sort of devastated. And he wanders the streets of Paris, heartbroken for the remainder of his life, missing his wife by acting like a man in love. He became a man in love again. Remember and return to those early days of your love for Jesus, those days when prayer and reading Scripture were life to you, when, when you just couldn't get enough of them, when, when you couldn't help but talk about what you were learning to, to sort of anyone who would, who would listen. If you find another Christian, you would just sit down and say, this is what God's been teaching. This is what you've been showing me in the Word. Um, this is how I'm, just, I'm growing and I'm learning. Right, A church that is comprised of people who have forgotten who have not ever truly experienced God's love for them, will not be a light. We cannot witness to what we have not experienced. We cannot uh, be a light to what we have forgotten. A church without love is a church without light. So a church that loves, it refuses to give up on the truth. It remembers God's love, and it also then retells the story of God's love. That's what that lampstand imagery, again, is all about, that this, this idea of the church is a, is a lamp, it's a light to the world. And we will be a light to the world to the extent that we retell 
the story of love that we have experienced. And we do that in our good work and in our good works, and we also do it with our words. We must retell the story of love. And, and again, we can't help but share what we love, right? And it's pretty obvious in Kansas City uh, what we love right now. We love the Chiefs, right? We can't be more excited about the Chiefs here in Kansas City. Uh, and, we, and we can't stop talking about them. That's part of the evidence of how much we love them, right? You're in the grocery store. You're walking down the street. You're talking with your neighbors. We talk about and share what we love. But do we talk about and share what God is doing in our lives? And I think sometimes we want to do that. We want to be the kind of people who do that, but we just don't know how. We don't know how to do that in ways that are not um, awkward or, or weird. And so I wonder about, this is just one simple way that you can begin to do that. And that's in answering the question that, that most of us get every Monday. When you go back to work, when you go back to school, right? What's the question that we, that we ask and people ask of us? How was your, how was your weekend? And you can say, oh, you know, it was good. You know, we had a good time with family or uh, had some time to relax or do some work around the house or went to the soccer game or whatever it might be. And, and also, you know, I, I was really good yesterday. At, I was at church and I've really been wrestling with this thing going on in my life. And it was just so good to be there at church with people who know me and who love me and who just encourage me something that simple. Or, or maybe there was something that was particularly helpful in the, in the sermon that week from the Bible. You say, you know, I, yeah, it was a great weekend. We did this, we did that. And, you know, I've, I've been really wrestling with this thing in my life. And it was so good yesterday at church, this the insight from, from the Bible and um, or the, in this Bible study that I'm doing on Tuesday nights, whatever. But that was like, it's really been helping me process that. And I've really been able to find peace um, in, in this. It doesn't have to be pushy. It doesn't have to be formulaic. Just simply talk about, first and foremost, like where, where are things hard for you right now? And, and how is your faith? How is your church community? How is Jesus helping you in that? Let's let people know that, that church, that your community, that your faith have been helpful to you. It's our love that is our light. And a church without love is a church without light. And finally, as we wrap up here, a church that loves, a church that overcomes by persisting in love, a church that love receives the gift of life. That's how it ends in Revelation 2-7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Right, the church that overcomes by bearing witness to the love of Jesus in the world. Jesus grants the right, the joy of eating from the tree of life. And you know, if you've been with us, you know, we just finished a long series in the book of Genesis and that imagery of the tree of life goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, to the Garden of Eden, that there was this tree of life that was present. And then you fast forward all the way to the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. And what do you find in the paradise of God but the tree of life? And what you discover in between the Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation 22 is that the tree of life, the way to the tree of life, is the cross of Jesus. That Jesus' cross, that place of death, actually is the tree of life. That Jesus' death on that tree gave life to all who would put their hope and trust in Him. Jesus opens the way to the tree of life by being nailed to the tree of death and transforms that place of death and torture into the place where we find life and forgiveness. 
A church for the end of the world looks to the gift of the tree of life and that church desires with all of its heart and with all of its soul and mind and strength with all of their lives for every friend, for every neighbor, for, for every family member to come and to invite them to come and experience and taste and receive with the tree of life to feast under its branches. Friends, have you received the gift of life? Have you experienced the love and forgiveness that Jesus offers? You know, a, a moment ago I was saying you need to re remember that moment. Maybe some of you here this morning have never had that moment. You've never actually given yourself over and said, you know, Jesus, you are my only hope. Maybe you do that this morning. Have you received the gift of life? For those of us who have, are we inviting others to experience that life, to feast under the tree with us, to say, come, I want you, I love you so much, I have experienced this love of Jesus, come and do this, come and receive the life that I have found also. Well, in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate together, we do this each week, and really what we're doing in that moment, church, is we're getting just a little appetizer of the tree of life. This, this picture, this symbol that we can taste and touch and eat of the good news of salvation, of the forgiveness of sins, of the life that we have in Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus' love for us. We, we repent of our sin and our lovelessness, and we are nourished to do the hard work of love. Receiving communion deepens our love for Jesus and brightens our light the world.